We're going to carry on uh, our service by reading from God's Word. Uh, we're going to uh, look at Acts chapter 4, uh, starting at verse 32, uh, all the way through to chapter 5, uh, verse 11. So you can find it uh, on page 1099 in the Church Bibles, uh, Acts chapter 4, uh, starting at verse 32. Let me pray for us. Our loving Father, we pray that you'd fill us with your Holy Spirit, uh, that now uh, we would uh, see the Lord Jesus more clearly through the pages of this word. We pray uh, that our attitudes and actions would be radically transformed uh, because of the unity uh, that you give us in the gospel. And we pray that you'd keep us uh, from all hypocrisy as well. Amen. Well, Acts chapter 4, starting at verse 32. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test you, the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all those who heard these things. Well, we're looking at the book of uh, Acts, and one of the uh, questions that the book of Acts asks of us is what should church really be like? The gathered community of Jesus' followers. What should it be like? What should it feel like as a Christian to be involved in a church community? 
Uh, perhaps you're here this morning and you've uh, had that problem where uh, you've had the feeling that you don't belong. Now, wherever you've ended up, you've uh, struggled to make friends, uh, to connect with people. Maybe you're uh, the opposite, though, and uh, no matter where you go, you immediately feel at home. You uh, make friends, you become uh, best pals with people, and you instantly uh, fit in. But perhaps you're here thinking, well, is church really the place for me? It's certainly our hope that you would find a home here, wherever you're coming from today. Find our church to be a suitable home. And it's our hope that each of us would experience more of the biblical unity that Jesus says we are to expect. His followers are to be one, one family, one body. There's to be a great unity, and we can all get involved. Now, I'm aware that uh, when saying these sort of, sorts of things, there can be a bit of uh, baggage that comes uh, with us to church. I was having a chat with somebody uh, about a year ago, and they said to me, uh, the church is just run by hypocrites, Right? Uh, She said, I'm sure you're not one, Callum, but all the priests I knew growing up were just hypocrites about everything. Well, if there's uh, anything we need to be certain of, it's that we're not being hypocritical uh, in our church, not covering up sin. That is surely one of the great demands of following Jesus as a church. In fact, we will see today that hypocrisy of this sort is a great danger. You'll have heard the phrase Spider-Man uses, with great power comes great responsibility. Wise words. When it comes to the church, we could say with great unity comes also a great danger. Let's look at God's word and see more about these things. Uh, We are in the book of Acts. The early Christian believers, they've been praying for boldness, Boldness to speak the word because two of the apostles, Peter and John, had uh, just been arrested and threatened. Be quiet about Jesus. Don't talk about him anymore. They're released. All the believers gather together and they pray for boldness in speaking with the word. And now we see the community that has formed around the teaching uh, of the apostles, around the followers uh, of Jesus. We get a great unity. Verse 32, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace came upon them all. We see first this great unity. These believers, they're of one heart and soul. The reaction of uh, of God answering uh, their prayer, that they would be uh, filled with the Spirit to speak more boldly, as we saw in, in verse 31. It leads them to being united, committed to one another, committed to speaking God's word and committing uh, to love one another. We have a unity here that's not artificial. It's not based around some uh, qualifications to get into a club but around faith in Christ. With great power, the apostles give their testimony about the resurrection. That's the foundation of the unity of the church. It's the teaching of the apostles about the resurrection of Jesus. How does the church get more united? Well, it's the resurrection of Jesus. 
that draws us together. How did we get this unity? Not by being holy and special, top of the class at everything, but by recognizing that we're sinners in need of forgiveness. And Jesus' death was for the forgiveness of sin. His resurrection, that gift of new life, his spirit lives in us and draws us together. He welcomes us into a new family, says that we're to follow him, leaving behind our old ways. But the fullness of the spirit is shown not just in words, but in deed, service and witness, love for the family, as well as the testimony of the word. Luke, the author of Acts, says the full number of believers here. They're forming a close-knit group. They're together, one heart, one mind, a fundamental solidarity of love, which they enjoy together. And sharing their things was an expression of this love. This great unity is shown in the practical commitment to one another. Three markers of which could be a generous attitude, generous action, and the meeting of genuine need. First, generous attitude, in particular to their possessions. Back in chapter 2, Luke describes the new Christians as having everything in common. And it's same here in verse 32. They shared what they had. Now, it's not to say uh, that there was no such thing as private ownership. And literally, uh, everything uh, was in one pot and distributed equally. But Peter later states that Ananias' property was his own. But what we should emphasize here is no one said that uh, any of the things that belonged to him was his own. Or or no one claimed their possessions for themselves in that way. Yes, they were still their possessions, but in their heart and their minds, they'd had such radical transformation that they had a new radically generous attitude that they thought of their possessions as being available to those who were in need, those needy brothers and sisters. Now, is this our attitude? It's a challenge, isn't it? Actually looking in at our hearts and having an honest reflection, can we say uh, that no one having any need is the attitude of our hearts? I've heard uh, the attitude summarized as thinking of our possessions as, uh, I have it, but you need it, therefore it's yours. It's quite simplistic, but why not make it a goal? Instead of thinking, uh, I have it, uh, you need it, but it's mine. And pray to have the radically generous attitude of the early Christians when we look at what we have, when we look at our own hearts, we say, well, I have it, but you need it, it's yours. And then pray that this would lead to generous action. Verse 34, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. The selling of possessions and the giving of money. This isn't a compelled, forced thing. It's not the case that uh, to sign up to be a Christian meant people were forced to sell all they had and everything was distributed uh, equally as some sort of utopian uh, vision of the future. No, it's it's radically generous attitude leading to radically generous action. If someone is in need in the church family, hang on a second, we can meet that need. 
If we sell our field, we'll, we'll be able to meet that need. Let's do that. I think it's worth being clear here. This is people giving uh, to the apostles that those in need might be supported. And so uh, elsewhere, there's a specific giving to uh, the church for the ministry uh, of the church spelled out in the New Testament. But I think here is a generous action uh, is required in both situations. But this is to meet needs uh, of the brothers and sisters. The heart attitude of worship, understanding uh, that what we own isn't really ours, but a gift from God. We should be quick to give to those in need. Quick to give to the church so that those in need can be supported. What might it look like for you today? A simple way of doing this is to have a look at our own giving. Would we call it generous? Would you call it generous what you give? Maybe you've never given to church. Maybe it's been a while since you looked at at your church giving and uh, you've really, realistically, your financial situation has changed and Uh, what would count as generous when you first started giving isn't what would count as generous now. What would it look like for you to be generous with your time to the church, to those in need in the church? What would it look like to be generous with your skills as well? The generous attitude leads to generous action. And the consequence is the meeting of genuine need. The attitude and action were based on the principle that their giving would be proportionate to meeting a real need. And so verse 35, they laid it all at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. The consequence of this was that there was not a needy person among them, verse 34. So is there a need known to you in the church family? Could you help meet it? You can ask, is it a genuine need? Is it a real need? You can ask, am I the right person to meet it? It's potentially quite a difficult thing to do because it could involve quite a sacrifice of time, of money. But I think it's worth doing. The generous attitude leads to generous action that meets genuine need. And I think it's worth noting that in lots of today's society, Uh, We don't like to be thought of as needy. The idea that we need support, financial, time, someone's skill, it it grates slightly with our culture of appearing very, very sorted. But do we realise that every single one of us is needy? We have such a great spiritual need that our physical needs shouldn't really be a cause of embarrassment Because even the most outwardly sorted is still a great sinner with a great need of God's grace. And so God generously supplies forgiveness of sin by Jesus going to the cross in our place. He gave up abundance to have our great spiritual needs cast upon him so that we can receive abundant mercy. So don't fear appearing needy. Spiritually, you are. And physically, you may look very, very sorted. But if you're not, don't fear appearing that, because spiritually, we are all needy. And here's a good example of this in action. 
verse 36. Thus, Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, he sold a field that belonged to him and he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Can you imagine just having that radical attitude? The radical attitude towards your own possessions. The radical attitude towards those in need, towards the church. Can you imagine having that radical attitude towards giving? Now, if you're not a Christian here today, you might be thinking, this sounds a bit too good to be true in some ways, doesn't it? Or even just a bit impractical. How do you know you're not getting scammed, for example? You're not the only one if you are here thinking that. Uh, there was a, a, a an ancient, uh, I want to say rhetorician, but he probably counts as a philosopher as well. Lucian of uh, Samosata, who lived in, in about 120 to 180 AD. He was incredibly hostile to Christians. And he wrote about them. And he said uh, that they take uh, Jesus' instructions completely on faith with the result that they despise all worldly, worldly goods, hold them in common ownership. And so any uh, adroit, unscrupulous fellow who knows the world has only to get among them these simple souls and his fortune will be quickly made. He basically says, these Christians are so generous that they could get scammed. They're so radically generous. They believe Jesus' commands so much uh, that somebody could get in there and deceive them. So if you're not a Christian here today, know that people have always looked at Christians and said they're so radically generous that they could be open to being scammed. And maybe if you're not a Christian, think what could form such a community? What could form such a community? The answer is the grace of God so generously given. This great example of a generous attitude leading to generous action, meeting genuine need, is then contrasted for us with a great danger. With great unity comes a great danger. And this example is a warning to us. The great danger is that we need to avoid hypocrisy. Have a look at Ananias and Sapphira. Verse 1. A man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, they sold a piece of property. With his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Ananias, he might have been a believer for a little while. He he might have been uh, getting established in the community. He loves the community, maybe, and maybe he's also done pretty well for himself. Fields to spare. Maybe he sees a need and he puts one up for sale and, I, I don't know, maybe the, the flat in town is uh, not really using it. It's just passive income. Let's, let's stick it up for sale and give to this need. And maybe, uh, hang on, he gets a bit more than he's expecting for it. Nice, he thinks. Uh, realistically, how much do the apostles actually need all of this? Uh, maybe it would be a bit too radical. He talks it through with his wife, Sapphira, and she's like, oh, well, yeah, the market's really come through for us. We, should, should we be giving it all? Should we give part of it? And they say, well, let's give part. Part of the profits. And, oh, well, we don't want to look stingy, though, do we? So uh, we'll give part. But let's say that we only got the going rate. Let's say uh, that we're giving all of what we got. 
Oh, we don't know, but I imagine it's maybe something of, of how that went. A good plan, maybe a, a wise investment strategy. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land while it remained unsold? It did not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Peter says to him, you didn't have to lie about this. It was your field. It was your, your flat in town. You could have kept it. No one made you sell it. Even when you had sold it, you didn't have to actually give the money to church. You could have kept it. And even when you gave the money, you didn't have to lie. You could have said, this is half the profits from the field. But you lied. Verse 4. Why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. This is, if you like, a sneak attack from Satan, isn't it? If Satan uh, can't intimidate these early Christian believers uh, into silence with the threats of powerful rulers, as we saw last week, he'll get them by hypocrisy. It's just as dangerous as persecution for this early church. Because think about it. If it got out that Ananias had said uh, that this was all he got for his field, and then it turned out that he got way more for it, and that got out and became public knowledge, everyone looking in from the outside would just think, well, these Christians, they talk about truth and and honesty. These Christians, they talk about uh, generosity, but actually, here's this guy lying. They're just corrupt. Uh, they want to just be seen as generous, don't they? But they're basically just doing it for status. It's dangerous for gospel witness. If it turns out that we are liars, if we are hypocrites, we discredit the gospel in the eyes of the world. How attractive this great community should be. How wonderful this great unity is and should be. Everyone with generous attitude, leading to generous action and the meeting of genuine needs. But then it turns out that Satan has actually managed to get some sort of Trojan horse of deceit and corruption in there. Everyone looking in just says, well, these guys are just jokers. They don't mean what they say. Maybe beyond even the hypocrisy of the Ananias event. Think how about how many people throughout history have been hurt by the cover-up of sin within the church. The hypocrisy of people who are uh, to be uh, generous to those in need, actually taking advantage uh, of them. Throughout the years, thousands and thousands of people have been hurt by Christians being hypocrites. When sin is hidden away, people get even more hurt the cover-up of sin is a very serious thing. And God treats it seriously. What happens to Ananias? Verse 5, when Ananias hears these words, he falls down and he breathed his last. And the fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose up, wrapped him and carried him out and buried him. It's pretty brutal stuff, don't you think? Just for, what, a small lie about how much he's, he's giving? Is it any better for Sapphira, his wife? Verse 7, after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in 
not knowing what had happened. Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for this much. And she says, yeah, yeah, it was for that. And so she, she doesn't know at this point that she is technically a widow. And Peter gives her a chance in a way to say, I was never actually involved in this, to prove herself innocent. But she says, yep, that was the price. And Peter says to her, how is it that you've agreed together? It turns out you guys were in this together to lie to the Lord, to test the spirit of the Lord. He says, behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately, verse 10, she falls down, breathed her last. The young men come in and they find her dead and they carry her out and bury her beside her husband. So what do we think of this example? It's clear, isn't it? God takes this sort of lie, this hypocrisy, very seriously. It's the lie that Peter chooses to focus on, not the fact that he did the action, but it's the covering up. Now, perhaps here today, right now, you're feeling pretty guilty, maybe in your seat, a little bit anxious. Will God take me out too? Maybe today you know that you are a hypocrite. Perhaps, though, today you're, you should know that you're a hypocrite. Perhaps uh, this needs to uh, just sit on you a little bit firmer. If, for example, we are church members here, we make church membership commitments to one another. They're for our good and for the good of our whole church. And we're committed to them. And if we're not fulfilling those commitments well, we're being hypocrites, aren't we? Now, there's all sorts of examples uh, of hypocrisy that we could uh, fall into, particularly when it comes to church membership commitments. Uh, Myself and the staff team, we do not know, for example, uh, how much is given or who gives to the church family. But we do know that there are a lot more members than we have regular givers. Now, one of the commitments we make as members is to regularly give. Now, we take this very, very seriously. The warning here is don't let Satan take your heart. Don't lie about these things. And repentance is a very simple thing. It doesn't have to be super dramatic. For Ananias, he could have made it right. For Sapphira, she could have admitted what she had done was wrong and made it right. So maybe we haven't been giving, or maybe we haven't been giving all that we said we are. We just bring it in line with what we know it should be. We set up the standing order, and or as a church member, if we're not serving, we step up and serve and get involved. Uh, if we forget about membership meetings, well, we get them in the diary as soon as possible. If we struggle to pray for the church, we pick up the church calendar and, and give it a go. Now, say that to you today. Let's say that's us today, sitting in our seats, feeling like a hypocrite. How do we know that God won't strike us down? How do we know we'll receive grace rather than judgment? Well, here, uh, we see a bit of how we read the book of Acts. 
There's something in Acts, there's some, some things in Acts that are uh, descriptive rather than prescriptive. And they serve uh, as an example, a unique teaching moment for the church to look back on. And I think this is one of these moments. Because look at the result of this. Uh, verse 11, a great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. In this moment, and uh, all who heard of it, they realised just how seriously God takes hypocrisy. And so they learn from it. Repent of it. They, They learn from it. God will not tolerate us being hypocrites. And so if that's us today, our job is to learn from it. These examples are given to us for us to learn from. So what will it look like being part of church? What should it feel like to be part of God's community? God's plan for his people is that they have a great unity based around the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, marked by a radically generous attitude towards one another. And that generous attitude translates into real, generous action. So when we look at our own possessions, our own time, our own skills, our own money, it translates into generous action that meets genuine need. Which means our church isn't to be a place where we're afraid to be needy either because of our great spiritual need. And there are great examples all throughout church history of Christians being so radically generous that it's a great gospel witness and there's a great danger for us in this unity, in this community, uh, that we be hypocrites. And that is a great danger uh, that we need to be aware of and need to flee from and repent of. So these examples, Joseph, son of encouragement, what a great example he is. Ananias and Sapphira. A warning to us, God takes hypocrisy seriously. Let's take it seriously too. We're going to pause for a moment. We're going to continue our service in prayer after we reflect on these things.